the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? higher side chatters when we look at gnostic teachings celtic stone circles the giza plateau the ruins of central and south america oral traditions the world over and many other breadcrumbs from our fragmented history it becomes apparent that our ancestors lived much differently than we do today but despite their vast geographical distances a lot of similarities in mindset and tradition seem to emerge from the distant past and the largest factor in why these people and traditions are no more is their systematic destruction and cultural obscurification by the Holy Roman Empire and European expansion. This much we seem to know, and even though our education system and so-called experts have routinely painted the picture that these cultures were primitive and unimportant, we look at the unique alignments and qualities of their structures, the richness and depth of their traditions, and the ever-important context that history is written by the winners, and many of us remain skeptical. And lucky for us, today's guest, Freddie Silva, feels largely the same way, and these realizations have been a true driving force in his quest for knowledge and restoration of the ancient traditions. Freddie has dedicated his career to researching ancient systems of knowledge, crop circles, alternative history, and more, and is the best-selling author of several interesting books, including Secrets in the Fields, The Science and Mysticism of Crop Circles, The Divine Blueprint, Temples, Power Places, and the Global Plan to Shape the Human Soul, and the main thing I plan to talk to him about today, The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest for the Other World. He knows his stuff, and it's a real pleasure to have him here. Freddie, my man, welcome to the higher side. Hello, Greg. Good to be on. Yeah, man. A big fan. Thanks for being here. I read your latest book and was really impressed with all the data that you have that backs up your main point about the tweaking of this word resurrection. And I think most of us are broadly aware that the Catholic Church is a hodgepodge of older traditions. And by absorbing some of these things, it made it easier for them to aggressively massage their worldview into the minds of many people. But Let's start with that word resurrection and some of those major elements in the Catholic faith that are a bit nonsensical until you restore that original context. What can you tell us? Well, exactly. I mean, I sort of grew up the same way in the Western religious tradition, thinking that resurrection was a word that was always associated with one guy who gets nailed to a cross on the winter solstice and gets up again three days later, or in this case, Easter. And it turns out that as I kept wandering around the world looking at ancient sacred sites, I kept hearing the story about the raising rituals and the risen from the dead and the few and the many. And then I came across the living resurrection mentioned in the, in the Near East by two actual apostles whose original gospels were seriously, they weren't just censored by the church, they were actually removed from the entire canon and they became the bane of the church. If anybody tried to sort of even mention about it, they were basically boiled alive. And I thought it seems a little bit sort of odd that people that seem to profess a religion that's based on love and charity should be behaving this way. So what is this all about? And it turns out that when you actually read the banned Gospels of Philip principally and also Thomas, the brother of Jesus, 
they actually talk about an imposter church that takes over from the true Christian brotherhood. And that really got me very excited that perhaps we've been barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> and as it turns out, they were discussing something called the living resurrection, where nobody actually gets nailed to a cross. Nobody actually physically gets up from the dead and comes back again from the grave because they said, well, that's contrary to the laws of nature. You just can't do that. And the whole thing is basically a metaphor for the most important ritual of initiation that was conducted not just during Jesus' time, but also as a tradition that goes back as far as I can figure it out, three and a half thousand years before Christianity. So Christianity is really as basically a new kid on the block when it comes to this ritual. And like I said, the church basically didn't understand the ritual, but also they knew they also wanted to take that another stage further from the actual ritual into something they could own. So they created this concept of a guy that gets nailed to a cross and then gets up three days later, essentially grafting the story of Jesus onto the story of Mithra, who's a 6,000-year-old risen God-man who does exactly the same thing down to the point where his birth is heralded by shepherds and angels and all kinds of things that we know in the Christian narrative. So the uh, whole resurrection concept really was nothing more than a very secret ritual where you crossed into the other world, you undertook a near-death experience, which sounds very harrowing, but apparently people did this again and again and again. So obviously there was a huge benefit to it, and people like Plato and Pythagoras themselves even said that the experience of living resurrection was the highest point of spiritual self-development. So if they're saying it, there has to be some benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really eye-opening moment to realize that that is kind of the switch, and that Resurrection really does relate to this kind of psychedelic ritual in the astral plane. But you mentioned that you can trace it back to three and a half thousand years before Christianity. What do we know about that earliest instance of this usage? Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, if you sort of look at the context of the Middle East and also in China, you start getting these instances in texts that have survived, and there's not many. But the few that have survived, they talk about uh, people basically getting taken aside from real life and joining this inner brotherhood. And this included women as well. And they basically gave up most of their lives to undertake this teaching, if you like. And when you start sort of putting these pegs together, it turns out that in the southwest of North America, they were also doing a very similar concept as well during a rite of passage. And what they shared in common was the fact that they basically went into learning the secret mysteries uh, teachings of how the universe really works, the mechanics of nature, how to control those mechanics, and also how to learn about the true mystery and the importance of the soul. And the last portion of the uh, initiation involved a kind of induced near-death experience, either inside a man-made chamber, an underground room, or an actual cave on a sacred mountain. And in China specifically, these people were called the gentlemen of the way. And it wasn't specifically geared towards men. It was basically a euphemism that covered everybody that did this. And they said that uh, basically, in order to actually understand the true mystery of nature and the purpose of the soul, you literally had to die and had to be reborn in this lifetime. And what they did was, was that they actually crossed over into the other world for several days. And there's one Persian account where one person actually did it for seven days out of body. And they basically left the body as though you were completely comatose, and they came back again. And that's the point when they were declared to be risen from the dead. And they made a distinction between the risen and the dead in real life. 
by saying that the people who have not experienced initiation are basically walking a living death whereby you are born and you have a very difficult life. You think that everything is based on the physical narrowness of the world. In other words, everything that exists literally is what is physical and what you can see and what you can touch, and then you die. And these people had had an earth-shattering experience where they were shown that actually that's not how things really are. There's a much bigger plan that takes place in the universe. And once you understand your soul's purpose in this bigger scheme of things, you come back aware, awake, or living. You are truly living yourself, living alive, rather than just walking about as if you have no idea what's going on. Kind of like people who sort of walk down the street looking at their cell phone nowadays and kind of run into cars or get run over by cars. So mm -hmm. in a way, it's a sort of a repetitive concept to try and wake up the human soul. Yeah, I mean, we like you say, we use the terms awake and asleep to describe the masses or people who have been, quote unquote, initiated into a psychedelic experience. We use those terms today. So it's really not much of a stretch that they would say alive and dead. I mean, it's very similar terminology. And a lot of us have taken some kind of psychedelics or had some type of out-of-body experience that maybe gave us a glimpse to the other side, but this is a much deeper and more sustained exploration. I mean, seven days, that is pretty intense. Absolutely. And that was the thing I also asked during this whole research was, you know, how does this differ from something like, you know, a weekend's retreat in the Amazon doing ayahuasca? And apparently it's very, very different. Mm. It seems that our concept of shamanism, at least in the last 3,000 years, is a kind of a uh, trying to mimic this art that literally is lost. I mean, we don't do this anymore unless you go to some very, very obscure parts of Central America or Indonesia where it's still practiced. And then you really got to know someone who knows somebody else and that they might allow you to sort of join in. But yeah, because you can do basically shamanism in a weekend, although you really shouldn't. You should take longer than this for preparation. And here they're talking about three years of preparation because they recognize that in order to have a voluntary near-death experience, they actually had to prepare you in all kinds of, not just mental ways, but practical ways. And the connecting point between the two was the fact that they too also took a narcotic. But the difference was that these narcotics that you find in Central America, South America, the Middle East, also in Egypt, they were looking for specific plants which actually had a certain poison to them. And the people who administered this poison had to be trained for many, many years it was a huge responsibility. If they slipped up on any moment of the procedure, they would be disbarred for life. I mean, they were really serious about this because they understood that these poisons, if you take them in a certain dosage, they can actually help calm you down, kind of like an anesthetic. Because when you think about it, after three years, you're being told, well, at the very uh, height of your initiation, you're going to die, and then you're going to come back three days later. No amount of training can prepare you for that moment. <laughs> it sounds very harrowing. So I guess you've got to have a certain anesthetic to calm you down. And that's how they use these drugs. Now, in shamanism, of course, you use a drug to induce kind of a vision, but they're differentiated between the two. These are not visions. These were the actual experience of the soul leaving the body completely aware of being in another level of reality, kind of like being in a different radio station. And that world is absolutely real as the world we live in right now. And this is why philosophers chose to do this rather than take drugs because they recognized that the information that they gleaned about the nature of the soul, the nature of the universe, you know, how the mechanics of nature really work, if you're able to remember that when you're out of body and you come back into your living body, 
and go about your daily life with that knowledge, well, that makes you into a kind of God without sort of the ego part of it. You can actually apply that practically in your daily life. And that's why so many of these people that undertook this living resurrection initiation, they went on to be fabulous teachers and philosophers, you know, and sometimes famous religious people as well who practiced all kinds of wonderful things. So the benefits, of course, were not just for the self, but it was supposed to be something that you'd also apply to the world around you to make the world a better place. So that's a differentiation between shamanism and the resurrection ritual. One was uh, basically inducing a state. The other one was the state itself. Mm. Yeah, it is fascinating. And we always hear the term immortal thrown around with the Egyptians. And again, like I've had slivers of experiences that felt like they took a long, long time. And really, it's only a 15 minute or less thing. I can only imagine if you were in that place uh, in a much stronger way for seven actual days in real time. I mean, you could live a lifetime over there. It would feel like uh, you had some type of immortality to an extent. Oh, they came back very discombobulated. They certainly did. The few remaining accounts, they described it as a very difficult re-entry. And I'm not surprised because, I mean, these people were forbidden to describe what they saw for a very good reason, I found out. And it was to do with the fact that the journey is very personal. No two journeys are the same. So for you and me to describe our journey sitting at a cafe to your friends and saying, hey, guess where I've been for the last three days? It would actually color the experience for somebody else. They would expect to have that experience, but that would not be the experience. That would be someone else's. And what the priests and priestesses, were, and in fact, the women actually had the highest level of guardianship over the actual process, by the way, which is something that the church completely removed. They basically recognized that you had to go in with a completely empty slate. This was your particular journey, not somebody else's. Otherwise, you know, you're getting a false impression, and that's not what the point was about. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. It's definitely an impressionable experience for sure. And I'm a little curious about the the details around that process itself or explaining that to the listeners and how it differs from just taking mushrooms in mom's basement. I mean, there are other elements that strengthen the experience outside of just the compounds they're taking, right? Yeah, and it was a very strict science. And again, I had to piece this together piecemeal going around the world, looking at similarities, because so little of the information survives and what little there is, you really have to go and look in some very weird places to find it. And <laughs> once you find it, it's a matter of like knitting together this big vest of a story. And basically, they actually designed these specific chambers. And we know quite a lot of these. The most famous one of them, of course, is the Great Pyramid. We know that there's not a shred of evidence that it was ever used as a burial chamber despite the fact that the orthodox archaeologists keep repeating this thing ad nauseum without a shred of verb to back that up. And anyone that's actually had some quiet time in the king's chamber knows that there's something very unusual about that place and the box itself. Even the dimensions of the actual chamber are very specific. So if you've actually undertaken the route from the bottom of the pyramid all the way up, you can see that you start at this well, which is a very roughly shaped room under the actual pyramid, and as you progress up the chambers and the passageways all the way up to the top chamber, the stone gets more refined and more polished. And that, in the esoteric terms, is a metaphor for the polishing of the diamond. So you start off as a rough diamond at the bottom, and you end up as a polished stone at the top. And that tells you exactly what these buildings were doing. So basically, they would make sure that, first of all, that the locations were specially chosen 
for their geomagnetism and every single sacred space on the face of the earth and specifically places for out-of-body experiences were located at the geomagnetic hotspots of the earth. Then they would go around looking for some specific stones. If anybody's ever paid attention to the building methods of these temples, you know that they didn't just chose the stone that was lying around that was so convenient and so cost-effective. Sometimes they would go as much as 400 miles down the Nile just to pick up the right stone. So you look at these things and you figure out, ah, these stones have a specific type of quartz, which when you put them under pressure creates a piezoelectric effect. Secondly, they have a lot of magnetite, and that begins to work to create the electromagnetic environment around you, which stimulates all the particles of magnetite in the human skull, and also the iron that flows through the actual blood in the body. So the buildings themselves were kind of a mirror image of the human body, and they did that in order to exert this effect, this calming effect, and this out-of-body effect onto the actual person. So everything was carefully chosen to put you into another world state, even while you're in the body. And if we visit some of these places today, you can't help but thinking that you've actually gone away and stepped into a different environment. And when you come back from places like Chichen Itza or Stonehenge, you are not the same person when you went in because something about the environment has already altered you, which is an interesting word, altering, because we go to so many churches and there's a place called the altar. That's exactly where it comes from. It's supposed to be altering you. And so the actual design, the shape, the position of the room would begin to induce this state and it would actually start to meld you into the actual matrix of the earth. And then finally, it would release you into the matrix of the cosmos and hopefully bring you back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I also watched your uh, documentary Stairways to Heaven, The Practical Magic of Sacred Space, and that gets into a lot of this stuff too, especially relating to early churches and temples and the qualities of them, like like you said, altars, and these ones, I guess, were built on quartz in the beginning, uneven spires to encode the sun and moon and create those resonance effects inside certain cathedrals. Absolutely. It is interesting stuff. Yeah, it's all about resonance in the end. I mean, even physicists today who are much more aware, they do state that the body is a bunch of resonances, vibrations, even diseases vibratory by nature. And once you understand the nature of vibration and sound, which and so many of these temples were designed to the actual harmonics of sound, even the mathematics correspond to the music scale, you begin to get a sense that the whole building was, as it's written in some temples around the world, to transform the human into a god, into a bright star. That's an actual phrase from a temple at Chichen Itza. And it was to try and remind you of the fact that you are a god. We all are gods. Uh, God is not a separate form, as modern religion has taught us. Uh, God is an interior thing. And the ancient cultures and indigenous cultures understood this. But they also understood that when you're down here on earth, you are also sort of influenced by physical things. You know, you want that Mini Cooper, you want that girl or that guy, Hmm. you want that beautiful house, and you crave this. And, you know, all of those things are wonderful, but if you start over-associating with the material world, you succumb also to its influences. And sometimes those influences do begin to distract you from your purpose as a soul. And also, it starts leading you into places that you really oughtn't be going into. So the building was designed as a mirror image of the perfection of the cosmos at a very basic level to remind you of your own perfection in case you forgot. And if should you want to find out further what your connection is to the bigger picture and to remind you that you're also a god and your extraordinary potential, 
you'd go into the building and you'd have this initiation experience and then you come back and go, hey, I remember who I am and I know who I am and now I can walk my life aware. Which brings us, of course, to the whole meaning of initiation, which the word literally means to become aware of the self. We tend to think of this as sort of, you know, like an animal house going for initiation with a baseball bat whacked on the back of your bum. But it's nothing to do with that. Initiation literally means to become aware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Intellectually, I really do love this perspective. And I have taken enough psychedelics to know there is another side of some kind. But I am really interested in having a sober out-of-body experience that's facilitated by some type of, you know, hotspot or geomagnetism situation or, you know, a, a cathedral that's built for increased resonance. But, I mean, are there any places left where a person can go and have this type of experience that aren't destroyed or under heavy guard? Oh, they're all around the world. For example, here in North America, you have the Native American sacred sites, the mounds of Ohio, for example. It's amazing how of all the ones that have been dug up, only 10% have actually got people buried in them. Mm -hmm. So it makes you wonder, why are they actually there? I mean, it's the same thing in Northern Europe. 90% of all the uh, mounds that have been dug, there's nobody there, but there's a chamber inside it and it's empty. So it's kind of odd that these things should be standing in the landscape and as though they're marking something. And they are, they're marking the hot spots of energy that we don't see with our physical eyes, but anyone that's sensitive to them can actually figure out that, yes, there's something unusual about the energy about these places. And we talk about these things in very new age terms, but these people are absolutely correct. And I know this for a fact because this is what I do as well. I mean, I look for science to back up what I say, but my first impression is always an ethereal thing. I didn't go back and look for the information to try and back this up. So one of my favorite places actually is in the Native American Southwest around the Four Corners. We call it Shiprock. The Native Americans call it Sebitai. I've even watched grown men break down like girly men at the base of this incredible eroded throat of an old volcano. It looks like an angel with wings that just suddenly sprouted out of the ground. And it's been sacred since the time of the Anasazi. So we're talking over four to 6,000 years. And there's a sense of presence about this place. You don't even have to be psychic to understand that there's something about it. You can hear people chanting around it. There's nobody around to be seen. Hmm. So these spots are very important. And they also tell you something else, that the temples came much later. The temples came at a time when we began to lose that connection. If you look at the Native American cultures and how they honor a place like Sebitai, even to this very day, or if you're a part of the Tewa tribe near Santa Fe, there's actually a hill there called Sikumu, just outside Santa Fe. And that is where they still do their ceremony, their out-of-body ceremony. And the initiates come back raised after three days on the mountain, which tells you something about yourself. The spot itself, although it's geomagnetic, you are also part of this technology. You are also the temple. So if you learn how also to still yourself and put yourself in a state of oneness with your environment, you actually don't need to take any narcotic. You don't need to take any of that diluted poison to still yourself and have that out-of-body experience. And I'm always amazed to read stories by present day and also not too far away stories from about a thousand years ago of native cultures from North America, Central America, and Polynesia, where they actually went into these sacred mountains and specifically a, a cave where the energy was just so. 
And they would basically stay up there for three days and nights, completely gone, in a state of total meditation, like a, a Zen Buddhist. And in India, they will say that, yes, you don't actually need a physical temple. You can do this by yourself. The temple is really there just to remind you, in case you forgot. And one of the things that I was told was that Kriya Yoga, as it is practiced in India, is actually one of the closest approximations to the resurrection ritual that was performed around the world. It's a way to completely harness the electrical energy of your body. You then have to still your breath, lower your heart rate right down to one beat a minute. And once you've mastered that, and there are people that can do that, then obviously you've crossed into the other world and you come back risen exactly as they used to do it. Hmm. Man, that is amazing. And I have been lucky enough to visit a lot of uh, sacred sites, places where people say they do feel a serious energetic effect, and I've never felt anything. And maybe it's because of the crowds, or maybe the magic is, is duller than it used to be or something. But are there, I guess what I would ask is, are there specific actions that you could recommend or, or something that would maybe nudge that type of energy effect along? You just have to come on, come on one of my tours. <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, yes, there is. I mean, you're absolutely, you actually touched upon something, Greg. For example, go back, going back to Stonehenge, I take people on small groups around the world to these sites, and it's funny how it takes some people a long time to get out of their heads. They take all their problems with them when they go on tour. <laughs> and depending on where you are in life and how aware you are, some people get it immediately. Once they step out of that van and we're on the first sacred site, they get it. They understand. They totally are present within the moment and they pick up the energy of the site. And then I tell them about the site and it's amazing how, how much they've picked up without me saying anything. And then you get the odd person who, you know, still inside their head, they're thinking about their mortgage payments and... <laughs> And the politics of the moment, and it takes them a few days, but by the end of the week, they too are beginning to realize that when you walk through these sites at specific times of the day in a certain calm state, yes, you do come back and you begin to question the world around you. You begin to perceive that the world around you is very different and you see things with different eyes, and that's how you start doing it. It's very simple, actually, but you're right. You do have to get away from the crowds. When you go to this place like Stonehenge and there's a hundred people, you know, or 200 people sitting there doing selfies and stuff. Right. And you look at the stones and I do this all the time and I go, they're just a bunch of rocks. They really do feel like a bunch of rocks. They look bored and they're switched off. Well, the temples do switch on and off. In fact, the Egyptians were very good about describing this and they wrote about this copiously. They talked about how the temple is a living, breathing organism. It's not a bunch of rocks. It's actually a person. Hmm. And the priest actually used to go into the temple before dawn and wake up every single part of the temple, every room, as though they're rousing a being from slumber. And it's not just a romantic notion. We have science to come back this up now. We've planted electrodes around sacred sites like Stonehenge and Avebury in England and also in, in the Karnak in Northern Europe. And we found that yes, the energy does go down during the night and just before dawn, something weird happens. The site begins to suddenly open up and it attracts all the electromagnetism that's flowing around the land and it draws down also an energy from the atmosphere and suddenly, and this is using measurable techniques today, the site begins to suck in the energy at twice the rate of the surrounding land the moment the sun actually comes up and then the stones actually 
harness that energy like a battery throughout most of the day and it's slowly like a person who's worn out after working the energy declines towards sunset and the whole process repeats again and again but if you're just standing there looking with the 200 people at Stonehenge trying to take photographs it just looks like a pile of rocks if you go there afterwards after hours and you pay a lot of money to get special access <laughs> kind of like the Great Pyramid as well the place is very very different it reacts to you and it also reacts to your intent in fact it even knows that you're coming if you prepare yourself before you go to these places, they pick up on that. These living beings pick up on you. And when you get there and you've done your preparation and you're quiet and you're humble, you'd be amazed at how the stones suddenly feel. It's like being in contact with a family that you've always wanted to have a good time with and you never want to go home despite the fact that you've filled your belly up with turkey. That's how <laughs> it feels. I love it. And, uh, yeah, I know you actually are speaking from personal experience because you've had a pretty intense one in uh, a pyramid that you've described in writing and in uh, interviews in the past. Tell us a little bit about that experience because, uh, you know, firsthand knowledge is always the most convincing. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I mean, when I start doing research, I really do like books that not only have very, very big bibliographies because it tells me that the person doesn't have to be right. They at least did the homework. And two, if it comes from a personal point of view, uh, it means that you're not really making it up. And a lot of the work that I do and why it takes so long to write books is that I kind of go at it with an open mind and I don't approach it from a particular angle. I want to know, what is this really about? And when you ask that question with relation to sacred sites and initiation places, it's amazing how much information comes back at you. And then you kind of get sent on this journey to actually find out how can I back this up with real facts. And they're there. You just have to take your time. And the one experience of the Great Pyramid is a very good example of that. I work with a small group of people who keeps a very low profile. And we go around the world cleaning up the mess that people leave behind psychically at sacred sites. And yes, you can do that. You can leave impressions in these buildings and they soak up everything. And sometimes they don't feel right. So that's our job. Hmm. And it was our opportunity to go into the Great Pyramid, into the King's Chamber one day. And uh, we went able to get private access, which means sharing the building with about 200 very noisy people, which is very disconcerting. And there were four of us that managed to get up to the top and suddenly everybody left. And I thought, wow, that doesn't happen by accident. Let's just sit down and do what we do best and have this opportunity and take this remarkable coincidence. And of course, nothing's by coincidence. Let's take this remarkable coincidence and do our work. So we began to tone in the actual chamber, get the sound frequency going. And there were sounds coming out of me that I've never done before or since. I don't know what was going on, but it was just extraordinary. And these three other guys, and by the way, the Great Pyramid is a guy place. It's a very guy energy. <laughs> the uh, ladies usually like the pyramid next door to the Great Pyramid, and the guys don't. And there's a reason for all of this. But anyway, so there's four guys doing this toning, and suddenly the lights go out. So now we're alone in the Great Pyramid without having had to pay huge amounts of money. It's complete darkness, and there's four of us just toning in the king's chamber. And I don't know, it must have been a couple of minutes later, I saw, it must have been about 33 people coming out of the stones and surrounding us. And I'm looking at this with my open eyes in complete darkness, and I can't see my three friends, but I can see these people surrounding us, and they're very tall, dressed in this kind of satin, white satin, Elegant, elegant people, uh, this wonderful sense of love. And we just kept going and going. And I thought, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. And then suddenly, 20 minutes has gone, and you get the sense there's a light bulb coming on. 
and we could take turns to go into the king's chamber and, and the actual sarcophagus. And five minutes in there, and you disappeared for a lifetime. And we had to pull people out of there. And then we come downstairs, we come out in full daylight, and it's quite obvious that four grown men are trying to say something, but they're too many to say it. And I'll say to them, okay, did anybody see what I saw in there? And the first guy says, oh, God, there's those people that came out of the stones, and they were really tall, and they're dressed in the satin. And suddenly, we all filled in the story, and everybody saw exactly the same thing. And you can't make that up. Hmm. We're in complete darkness. But here's the funniest part of the story. When I began to write about this in the Divine Blueprint and the Lost Art of Resurrection, I actually wanted to find out, has someone else done this? Because it would be great if someone could back this up. And it turns out, in my library of books, there was a book by a guy called Paul Brunton, who wrote this in the 20s, when he became disillusioned with modern life. So you see that nothing really changes. <laughs> he wrote about his experiences in, in, in Egypt, in the Great Pyramid, and I never got a chance to read the book. And sure enough, there's a chapter where he describes exactly the same thing happened to him, and he describes the people that he saw in darkness, in the king's chamber, in exactly the same way. And I thought, you cannot make this up. And as a third person, there's a friend of mine who's a, a sound, he's kind of a sound scientist, a genius, and very left brain, but very intuitive. And he's asked me on pain of death not to reveal his name because he doesn't want to be ridiculed by uh, his peers. But he said, yeah, when we hit a certain frequency in the pyramid with all our technical equipment, we begin to feel a presence around us. And we, it's like we can see people out of the corner of the eye coming out of stones. And I thought, wow. So again, it backs up what the Egyptians were saying, that these spaces are alive. They remember everything. And to a certain degree, all the people that also carry their initiation in there their memories are also in there. So it's kind of like a, a like attraction to like. You're never alone in these places. They really do look after you. And it's a good reason why we should go back to them again and again. <laughs> wow, man. Thanks for sharing that. That is a pretty wild story. I love it. And now to switch gears a little bit, you mentioned that the uh, Roman Catholic Church, they started outlawing access to these spaces because they clearly had value. And apparently they even had springs that were healing people and energy healing centers and now, the main factor in all this seems to be this ability to go out of body and hang out on the astral plane for seriously extended periods of time. But what can be said about other qualities or abilities that people had unlocked through these magical means and places? Well, there were also healings that were also involved at some sacred sites. It really depends on, the, on how the design was built and how its resonance was worked in a certain way. In fact, I want to say manipulated because they did manipulate the laws of nature. And they will create certain sites, which today, if you read the legends and the myths associated with them, each one does something completely different. It's like I was saying earlier about the pyramids on the Giza Plateau. The, the two big ones, of course, you know, you look at them and you go, wow, this is impressive. And they're identical. Well, actually, they're not. They're subtly different. And it's to do with the angle of the slope. And that's why they, anybody who works with the masculine energy really likes the bigger pyramid. And the feminine energy, people want to go to the slightly smaller one. And it's all to do with the manipulation of space. So this is why some places, healing places, some are initiation places, some are places where you go and do mental work. We're learning about the mysteries because the site itself induces a certain clarity of mind. It's all a big sort of cornucopia, a big potpourri of temples, and all of them are designed to do very, very different things. Hmm, that is so interesting about the 
pyramids having the two different energies like that, then I guess the third, of course, would have to be for transgendered. <laughs> you know, I don't have to look at it that way. You never know. But you know what? That's the one that always fascinates me. And people always go for size. You know, humans like size. Mm-hmm. But you know what? In the bigger mysteries, it, once you've done this for many years, you begin to realize that you, you've been getting in your way all the time. And you begin to actually appreciate the smaller things in life, the things that don't really get your attention. And that's where the big aha comes in. Because even someone like Zawi Hawass, the former Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt, you know, this huge bombastic ego, which is undeniable. But you know what? If you just catch him one day and you say to him, Zawi, the small pyramid, and that's all you say, and a different person pops into his body, he's on a different level of reality. You know he's seen and experienced something in there, which is profound, and I totally agree. In fact, if I was actually looking for the true entrance of the Hall of Records that lies somewhere along that area, that's where I would begin to look, because that's the one place that few people actually look at, you see. Hmm. So sometimes it's worth looking at the smaller things. It's kind of like the genuine crop circles, when they used to appear. Nowadays, they're mostly man-made, but in the old days, they were absolutely genuine. Most people never paid attention to the small ones, but that's where the real power is. That's where you get a lot of work done and where we got so much of our scientific research from. The bigger ones are impressive, for sure, but it's always the simple things that you should be aware of. The universe has a mischievous sense of humor, and you should pay attention to it. Yeah, I mean, I know you've done quite a bit of work on the crop circles, too, which have always been interesting to me. And knowing what you know about the ancient past and the connection that we had to the spirit world, is your impression that when these crop circles started showing up, that it was maybe the entities of the spirit world coming in and saying, hey, where'd you guys go? Oh, absolutely. And we had good proof of this as well. And one particular group consciousness, I, I call them a group consciousness, but to me, they're real people. They're kind of behind the original phenomenon, and they seem to appear in different times of history under different names. Sometimes we call them the Watchers, sometimes we call them the Shining Ones, sometimes we call them Guardian Angels. And they basically said that, you know, you've got to think about the association between crop circles and temples, and they were absolutely right, because everywhere there where there was appeared a uh, genuine crop circle, it was always next to an ancient sacred site. Now, we stopped building sacred sites in the last 2,000 years, 2,500 years. The only time we've really put an effort into doing things for the real reason, with good intent, was the Gothic building cathedral period, which was put up by the Knights Templar and the Cistercian monks, who were doing exactly the same principles as the Egyptians. I mean, exactly. And also over in Angkor Wat, at exactly the same century, this massive 60-square-mile series of temples suddenly was erected. So after that, there's nothing. And that's why I think the crop circles are so important, because they also are built on the same principles as a Stonehenge or as a pyramid. They just happen to be placed on cereal crop. And uh, they're filling in a gap in our connection and our consciousness. And it was always said that the temple was a mirror image of the cosmos. And it was supposed to remind you of your godliness when you forgot. So when you remind yourself of your godliness and you act as a god on the face of the earth without the ego part, people begin to look at you and go, wait a minute, that's a good way of doing this. Why don't we imitate this person? And that's how society becomes cohesive. You lose that connection, you lose your connection to nature, the perfection of things, and slowly society falls apart. Now, there is no argument that today society has fallen apart. 
we have also not created temples and suddenly the crop circles are here reminding us of the same concept. Now, here's the other connection. You can also have the same out-of-body experience in crop circles. And this has been also very well documented in research circles. And I'm one of those people that also has or has had an experience in one of these things. And I also got taken out of body just like I was in the Great Pyramid. So they're actually reminding you that you can do this for yourselves, but also you have to go back to the past, find out what's here in our history in order not to repeat the same mistakes. So that's the bigger picture that these entities are trying to tell us, that they used to come here at certain pivotal times in our history. And they mentioned certain periods around 2600 BC, for example, when they actually appeared as the shining ones in Egypt. And oddly enough, they also appeared as the watchers in England at the same time. And suddenly we get a big construction boom of, of pyramids and temples at that moment. And they said that because their frequency was so high compared to normal human frequency, they had to manifest bodies that take in that frequency. And that means that they were, had to be very tall, unusually tall, and also had the elongated heads. Because as we know today, Homo sapiens requires a large frontal lobe in order to do mental processing. That's how we get out of trouble. And sometimes we get into trouble as well by thinking <laughs> our, ourselves too much into it. But the back of the brain is the most mysterious one. That's your spiritual lobe. That connects you to another level of reality, which was still in the science world trying to understand it. And these entities were basically saying, that's what helped us maintain our connection to the invisible world, because we found living on Earth so damn difficult because it's such a dense plane of existence. So we understand how difficult it is. And that's where we come down here at certain times when things are really going wrong to help remind you that you've got to fix this for yourselves, but we'll give you a little nudge. And that tracks very nicely, not just with the crop circles, but also the building periods of temples around the world, and specifically the ones used for initiation, because they seem, from my research, this building period of temples seems to precede major cataclysms on the earth when things really go wrong, and usually within 50 to 100 years. So I do know for a fact, without alarming anybody too much, that there is, NASA is tracking a comet that's on a very close collision course with us within about 16 years. Shit. And if you keep a track of the news, you'll know that NASA keeps talking more about finding ways to destroy and, uh, comets and also to look for ones that we don't know where they are. So they know about this stuff. They just don't want to seem like they're very new agey. They're trying to sort of polish it in scientific terms, but they know that we periodically get hit. So the crop circles fit in beautifully within this time period. But again, the good news is that, you know, even though we get hit all the time by this stuff, we do survive. There are always survivors. This is part of the big plan. We continue and life is cyclical. So the reason why we're all here and you're here and I'm here is because we're part of this plan. So accept that. And you're, you're either here to do a change, you're here to have an experience, and you're part of the actual process. So live your life as, uh, as you would. Well said, man. And I've heard you describe that crop circle experience before. And it is so interesting, the idea that they mentioned, like coming into physical bodies and that that would explain some of the giant skeletons, some of the paracus skulls, as some people call them, those elongated skulls. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. It also does explain or, or goes a long way to explain why cultures on different parts of the planet would develop these things that, that are fairly similar when they really weren't supposed to be uh, communicating or they were supposed to have great distances between them. And so that is a bit of a mystery. But if there is some kind of like watcher beings that kind of uh, are guardians of the planet and kind of 
jumpstart the reset of humanity after a cataclysm, well, then a picture does start to emerge. Absolutely. And the reason why they call themselves watchers is they're saying, well, we can't directly intervene in human affairs because that would undermine the whole point of your experience. I mean, why get born and then have someone else do the work for you? It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, sometimes like a good teacher, you need a little nudge. And it also ties in nicely all the disparate cultures that talk about exactly the same process. I mean, the process of initiation and living resurrection was described all around the world. So, yes, how did they get the same story? I was just in Central America and also in Peru, and I wasn't expecting to find this concept of resurrection down there. And my God, I found it all over the place. And in fact, I just put half the information on a new information on a DVD because I was amazed how much the temples of the Andes are actually exactly the same process that you find, say, in the uh, Egyptian temples when no one was ever buried. And yet on the walls, it tells you exactly what the building was used for. And it was for this out-of-body journey where you expected to come back and get on with your life. And yes, all of the stories that follow all of these teachings also are associated with unusual people that came across the ocean from a sinking land. They suddenly appeared with all the knowledge of the cosmos, the knowledge of the stars, animal husbandry, how to domesticate crops. I mean, they came with their own built-in library of books. So these people were obviously a brain trust. They'd been around quite a bit. And they, the cultures also said that they helped bring humanity from a state, a state of bestiality back into a state of elegance and grace. Hmm. So, yes, I do believe that there's something unifying to this, that these strange beings do appear at specific points in our time to help things regrow. But again, we can't take this for granted, and we shouldn't take this for granted. You know, it's like the Hopi say, we are the ones we're waiting for. We have to do this for ourselves. Otherwise, it nullifies the whole point of coming here and going through this you know, horrible process of coming into a physical body as a soul, getting whacked in your bum by a doctor when, you get, when your mother gives birth, mm. and then having an existence and then you die. There's more to it than that. There really is. Right. And have you uh, taken much of a look at the Tibetan area? Because that culture has been pretty isolated, and we hear about their mystical traditions that seem to have survived and remains fairly undisturbed. Have you looked at them and kind of seen where the pieces fit with this larger story? Very difficult to get information from them for obvious reasons. One of them being that much of it never got translated into English. Secondly, because so much of the areas around Tibet and Nepal, obviously the, uh, a lot of the books have been stolen by the Chinese. They haven't been burned by them, to be honest. They've actually been removed. So obviously the Chinese authorities, are, uh, kind of like the, the church repeating itself in Europe, they're curious about it enough to keep the information, but uh, they will steal it. There was one very important thing that I did come across, and that was of an actual drawing that was made by a traveling monk from Europe that went all the way to Tibet. Or was, actually, it was Nepal. I beg your pardon. It was Nepal. And he said that he was amazed that when he got there, that he heard the story of this resurrected God-man who goes into this box. That's right. He goes into this box, this sarcophagus, on the winter solstice, and he comes back three days later as a risen godman called Iao, and he then is nailed to an actual cross, a foliated cross, and he actually drew these. I actually have the drawings in the, in the book of The Last Art of Resurrection, which is astonishing. And this monk, who was a Christian, said, I couldn't believe this, that this story was at least 500 years older than the story of Christ we had been taught, and that's what he actually wrote. And you quite clearly see in this drawing that was drawn from a, an original source, 
clearly showing that there's a man coming out of a sarcophagus. He has a little sort of dot on his forehead, just like a Zen Buddhist would today. And also, he is also nailed to this cross that has foliage all over it. So in other words, anybody from Northern Europe would have looked at this and said, yes, he's the representation of the green man, mm. the revitalizing foliated man of nature that on the winter solstice comes out of the woodwork. He represents the light that suddenly begins to overwhelm the, the darkness at that time of the year. So it's as much symbolic as it is practical. But they said that you know, there were people, actual human beings, who then looked at this metaphor for the rejuvenation of life and they would actually undertake that very same journey as part of their initiation concepts. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing to some people. Now, you know, was it a metaphor? Was it real? Well, the initiation was both. It was the concept came first. This is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be mirroring the regenerative cycle of nature. And hey, you can do this also for yourself. You can regenerate yourself. You can go from being a dead person, someone who basically does not see the big picture, and you can basically give yourself a rebirth, a resurrection, and you can come back as a living being, and you go about living your life fully aware. So that's where the concept really comes from, and it's amazing that even they had the concept of the man nailed to a cross 500 years before Christ. Yeah, that is fascinating. And you are right about kind of Tibet and China. Their relationship really does have parallels to that same struggle in the West. And if we were going to talk more about that loss of this tradition, because it seemed to be all over the place and pretty well established in the past. Can you take us back to that nexus of this deception and how the Roman Catholic Church pulled it off when so many people saw such value in it? It seems like a hell of a task to get the toothpaste back in the tube like that. <laughs> and you know, when John the Baptist learned this for himself, because I mean, he was taught within the uh, spiritual traditions of the Middle East, he brought this to Jerusalem, and it didn't cause a battered eyelid, because the local people said, hey, this is like the old story that we're getting back, and we can practice this again, because the Romans had also outlawed it before the Christians showed up, and the Catholic Church showed up. And the idea was that there was sort of a power vacuum, and it really comes back to the idea of ages. The earth and humanity and civilization works in a cyclical motion in ages, and these ages take about 4,320 years to complete. We're at the end of one such age right now, you may have noticed. And things around the sort of change of ages begins to get a little bit scruffy. There's a lot of violence that goes on against the esoteric religions. A lot of people who really understand the bigger picture with regard to initiation and shamanism get, you know, killed or uh, physically nailed to a cross. I mean, that was an actual sort of Roman form of torture. And so... Within this power vacuum, around the time when the Romans show up and also the Persians begin to decimate the Near East, this idea that people could actually empower themselves to understand who they are as a soul and go about aware and awake through life without any fear of death, and they actually wrote about this, they actually had no fear of death after they'd actually gone through the initiation because they felt that they were liberated, they understood that flesh is just flesh, and you know, if someone kills you, well... I'm going to go and live in the room next door in another level of reality. It's no big deal. They were totally, you know, unafraid. So for the Romans and the Persians and all the other little fascists that were going around at the time, they couldn't handle this because this is the time of Caesars and, and grain power. You can't have people thinking for themselves. Hmm. So, of course, the ultimate thing that came from the collapse of the Roman Empire was the Catholic Church. I mean, the empire and the church were one and the same thing. 
they also couldn't handle the idea as a bunch of guys that uh, the women would have the most highest important level of position within the temple. And they thought, no, 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 this whole thing has to be a uh, patriarchal thing. And we're in charge. We're going to be your intermediary with God. You can't say that you can contact God yourself. You have to come through us because we need a job and a paycheck. And it's literally that crass. It's really that simple. Nothing more heinous than that. And they basically were hounding Emperor Constantine, who was a worshipper of this god-man called Mithra, which is a tradition which I have now found goes back to India in 6000 BC. And here's the story. This god-man Mithra is born to a virgin in a cave. His birth is heralded by shepherds and guardian angels and a star that comes over the cave. He goes away on a walkabout to the sacred mountains for 40 days, has an incredible enlightened vision of how things really are, comes back to teach a religion to the masses, then he gets nailed to a cross, puts in a sarcophagus, gets up three days later, and he's declared risen from the dead. The church thought that this is a pretty interesting story. And so did Constantine, because he was worshipping Mithra, and they hounded him so much to the point where he finally just gave up and said, look, you know, I'm getting a little old, I'm getting tired of this harassment, I'm just going to take Mithra, remove that name, and I'm going to put the word Jesus in the story. And you look at the story of Mithra and Jesus, and it's exactly the same story. And that's how I basically fooled everybody. Because the church and all the powers that be at the time had basically massacred anybody that was an intellectual. So there's a lot of illiteracy. There was no one to challenge this role unless you're actually hiding away in some place like Alexandria. And this is why the library gets burned in Alexandria, because you've got all these dangerous liberals, intellectuals, who can spill the beans. Hmm. So again, nothing new to what we're experiencing today. You always go after the power source, which is the intellect. Anybody who can undo the uh, nonsense that you're coming up with is dangerous to the elite. So we're really reliving this thing again and again, but that's pretty much how the story of Jesus the martyr comes into play. Now, the story is that Jesus was a real person. He was an initiate of the mysteries. And when you understand the language of the mystery schools and how he was an actual initiate, you read the Bible again with this in mind, and suddenly a lot of the stuff that makes no sense makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. because he was speaking as an initiate. That's why the Bible doesn't make any sense. When they describe him as the Son of God, that actually gives away his highest level of initiation. And here's how it works you went in into the mysteries tradition as a disciple, and you entered the school as a son of a woman. When you graduated from your first year, you were declared a son of a man. If you were able to proceed to the next level of initiation, you would be declared a son of the gods. And if you did proceed with the final out-of-body experience and you came back alive, and most of them did, as far as I'm aware, and you were risen from the dead, you were declared a son of God because you were as a god. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you are the only person that's a son of God. Because, surprise, surprise, we all are sons and daughters of God. God is us. It's not some person with a big beard out there. It's within us. So just by saying that in the Bible, Jesus gives away his highest level of initiation. But you have to know the language in order to understand it. Mm. And it does make sense. You know, you have a lot of examples in the book where you point out that restored context, and it does add clarity. And I get the desire for power and control, but... 
man, if they just would have had the experience, how would they not just get on board? Like, what was the stick up the Romans' asses that had them destroying this <laughs> stuff rather than just adopting it and experiencing it like the Egyptians or even the Greeks? Well, because the world in the bigger picture of things, and this is something that's very deep in the mysteries teachings, you have to understand the bigger picture of cycles. We are here having an experience. We have personal experiences as a soul. We will come here to do an individual journey, and that's fine. But in the bigger cog of things, we also are here to have a collective experience, and that's where it gets a little bit more confusing for some people. Once you understand this and accept it, life becomes very much simpler because every 4,000 or so years, we live out an experience. And the current experience, the current paradigm is about giving away our personal power to the few to understand what happens with that experience. And you can see where now it's, we've learned this and we're living in very dangerous times right now of chaos where we've as a culture, understand that, okay, we've, we've understood that giving away our power to few people does not work very well, so let's try something else. This is why there's so much chaos around right now. We, subconsciously, are striving to achieve another level of order, and it will come, because even physics knows that, you know, in order to go from one level of order to another level of order, you have to have chaos. And the greater the amount of chaos, the greater the potential jump to another level of order. And that's how the universe really works. This stuff keeps happening again and again and again. So the Romans, the Catholic Church, and also you know people who are extremists who take, for example, the idea of Islam, which is actually a very beautiful faith, if you just read it for what it is, you've got these extremists who are using this for narrow political gain. They're part of the actual puzzle. We're not just sort of playing out this experience, but also waking people up that violence doesn't work miscommunication doesn't work, lack of cooperation doesn't work. So in a way, these violent acts are also mirrors for us to wake up and bring ourselves together. I'll give you a really good example, actually. When the uh, tsunami hit Indonesia a few years ago, all the governments in the world said, oh, yes, we're going to donate billions of dollars to the rebuilding and humanitarian aid. Absolute nonsense. Hardly anyone gave any money. Most of the money came from donations from you and me to help local people. And it showed that under certain conditions, in the state of great crisis, humans will pull together and look after themselves. And I thought that was a wonderful way of showing that, you know, we do have a certain level of control, but it does sometimes does take a catastrophe to bring out the best in us. It's just part of the human condition, unfortunately, that sometimes people have to be shocked into action. And it's just the way things are and the way that things always will be. But things are in their correct place in order for us to have this experience. So, you know, I, this is why I tell people, you know, don't fret that, you know, we, we got the, the wrong president and we got the, uh, all of these mm. violent acts around the world. They're part of a big picture. Just accept them for what they are. You know, don't become like a robot and don't feel empathy for people who get caught in the crosshairs. But at the same time, recognize that this is part of a wake-up call and there's a large underground movement that never gets any attention. And there's a lot more of us than there are of them. And sooner or later, and I'm pretty close now that the switch is very close to being clicked. I think people have had enough and you can feel it. So, you know, this is what what it means to understand the mystery secrets and to play into this knowledge. And once you understand this, you can live your life with a certain peace and be part of the bigger problems of the chaotic world, but, you know, be able to rise above it. Yeah, I think those are great points and definitely a good personal philosophy to live by. 
But you have done some great work, man, and right. you really have gotten to the heart of, uh, I think, a major manipulation, especially with this living resurrection ritual. I got mad respect for you. Before we really call it in, remind the people where they can find more of your work, your website, anything else you got going on that they should know about. Oh, if you have a few days to spare, well, a few weeks, <laughs> invisibletemple.com has all kinds of books and DVDs in there and all kinds of articles, so enjoy. And if you like it, tell somebody else. Right on. Short and sweet. Awesome. You are the man, Freddie. Thanks again, and take care out there. Thanks, Greg. Hallelujah, people, and sweet Easter to you. Freddie Silva, big hand to him. Great job. So glad I found his book when I did, and that it just so happened to work out that this was released on Easter. A little extra prankster energy for you. And I think Freddie makes a great case for this being the truth about the Roman Catholic manipulation and the twisted material the Bible is talking about. It also makes sense out of a lot of what's said about Egyptian mystery schools and all that. And I can completely see all the steps of warping this shamanic tradition, where we used to chant and take some mushroom caps and drink some psychedelic brew and quote-unquote become one with God. And they said, no, 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 this is Jesus. He died for your sins. He was brutally murdered. Just look at that cross. And now we're going to eat his body and drink his blood. It's cool. This isn't fucked up at all. And meanwhile, they took away the useful compounds for having a spiritual experience and replaced them with a cracker and some cheap wine. This is the great sin, folks. Oh, I don't really know. But this is sort of the narrative I've always had and enjoyed. And Freddie has really helped to fill in more space on that map, definitely. I loved the book and had a blast talking to him. And I hope you take time in the Easter season to shaman your way to enlightenment rather than taking kids to see a guy in a bunny suit or worse, going to mass. Because I think we need to speed up our evolution as best we can, friends, because these are troubled times. Like our friend Gordon White says in Chaos Protocols, first step, you gotta become invincible. So take risks and get comfortable with the unknown and wild swings because the pendulum has broken loose, if you ask me. But again, to back up Freddie's wider perspective here, if you dig, there have been quite a few researchers who have dug deep into the scriptures and Christian traditions and come to the conclusion that it's all based on psychedelics and tripping out at its source. A lot of the time, these are straight and narrow religious scholars, because who else is really going to look that deeply at this stuff? And they say, wait a minute, this is all about something else entirely. John Michael Allegro, who wrote Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, is probably the most famous example. He said Santa's suit is red and white because of the Amanita muscaria mushroom. This is why we hang stockings to dry the mushroom on the mantle. This is why reindeer fly with names like Dancer and Prancer and Blitzen. Because people are looking at them and tripping out. And if you look at nature videos on YouTube, you can see that reindeer actually eat this mushroom. So that's what people are seeing and how the story got started. It's all based on the mushroom experience, apparently. And who is Santa himself but a person who comes from the North Pole? or the hole in the inner earth, and brings gifts, or supplies, to the people of the northern regions where it's most cold when they need them most. <laughs> I just love this sort of stuff. These types of interpretations of why things are the way they are, what are the roots of these traditions and holidays. Easter, of course, is a big one. It's multifaceted, just like Christmas, I'm sure. But I think this lost art of resurrection, the out-of-body experience, and as Gordon says, becoming invincible, might be a big part of it. And it's a message that at least would be one of the most valuable, useful interpretations for listeners today, looking at the rocky road ahead. So if you've yet to support The Plus Show, you are really missing out on twice as much conversation every week. 
you'll love it so much more. And this week we talked about the story of Jesus the Initiate in those missing years, some of the forbidden or excluded Gospels in the Nag Hammadi texts, and some of the exotic things they say, how the Morning Star term originated with this living resurrection ritual, and the Amurumuru portal near Lake Titicaca. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but that is interesting. We also got into the ball courts of the Almec and the Maya and correcting the played with severed heads narrative and actually describing their true purpose, which was mimicking the game of the gods. We talked about the Celts and sites like Newgrange and this tradition in their culture. How funny that Newgrange is in the book when I just got back from Ireland and actually saw it firsthand. A little bit of synchronicity there. And we also talked about the Templars and how the secret traditions got to them and how Freddy looks at them as opposed to some other researchers we've talked to. I also added a link in the show notes about that Wrigley Museum on Catalina Island of giant bones that were actually used in the construction. The article puts a different spin on it and says that the Wrigley family is who helped to break it all down and ship off these Native American bones to all their proper places for study and research and all that. And sure, an elite family contributing to the removal of this kind of thing, spun as an altruistic, morally upstanding mission. Yeah, that does make more sense. But there was definitely something strange in that neighborhood. I also put out a video you'll find on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter of me and Mark Devlin going around Laurel Canyon, touring some of the serious hot spots talked about in Dave McGowan's book. We didn't get close to a lot of things, but it is kind of informative. Mark definitely breaks it down for you. And it might be a little bit of icing on the THC cake this week. Check it out. So there it is. Religion stuff isn't usually my bag, but getting to a source that I think is more useful to people is interesting. Can't deny it's that time of year. I like the added provocativeness of releasing it today, but it's all in good fun. I hope nobody is so attached to those aspects in their life that they can't look at them a different way. But either way, I love you guys. Got some great shows coming for the rest of the month, but that's all for me today. I've done my part. Your move, shaman suppressors, spirituality stiflers, and consciousness controllers. Your fucking move. Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling them out on TAC. Uncovering secrets and conspiracies. Everybody's looking for something Some of them want to use you Some of them want to get used by you Some of them want to abuse you Some of them want to be abused Bye.
As you mop up the remnants of your melted mind, consider this. The high-quality, commercial-free show you just enjoyed is what we call THC-free. But you can spend twice as much time with Greg Carlwood and all his great guests by becoming a member of the Higher Side Chats Elite for just $5. And you'll get the five extended two-hour episodes that come out each month. Because an honest, open-minded, and uncensored exploration into the fringe will never be brought to you by your corporate overlords, but rather must be funded by the loyal listeners willing to take that ride. So join at thehiresidechatsplus.com, and on top of twice as much show, get your own easy-to-use RSS feed URL for convenient listening on any device. Suggest guests on your member profile, comb through the archives of all the ones you missed, and continue the conversation even further on the new THC Plus Forum, where you can scratch that higher side itch in between shows with the rest of us and hold your head up high, knowing that your subscription supports a show you love, produces the free version for everyone else, and stands as a small act of rebellion against those nefarious puppet masters of the power pyramid. Treat yourself. It's time. 